Why don't you go ahead and have a seat? It's good to gather together with you all to come to a place where we're coming to a close of the summer, our summer together, and stepping into the fall school beginning and all of that. And we've been walking our way through one of my very favorite letters of Paul's, his letter to the Ephesians. It was probably the very first book as a young follower of Christ I studied in depth. And there are many phrases in this, in the, in this letter that have met me time and time again along the way. So before I step in and share some things that have been meaningful to me in this particular passage in uh, the letter to the Ephesians, I'd like to begin with a familiar word of prayer. Would you join me? And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. So as we today move into chapter 3 of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we come to a passage where Paul has a number of ways to describe his life and his work. The passage that we heard read was chapter 3, verse 1 through 13. I found four phrases that Paul uses to describe himself that spoke to me where I find myself in the journey. Perhaps they'll speak to you too. The four are, he calls himself a prisoner of Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. He talks about the stewardship of God's grace that was given him for them. He speaks of himself as a minister of the gospel. And then finally, and maybe most surprisingly, he describes himself as the very least of all the saints. Those first three sounded like really robust, exciting descriptions of himself. And then, oh my, the very least of all the saints. But I hope I'll be able to show you is that these four descriptions of himself intersect and interweave and are a way for us to understand our own journey in Christ. So first, he calls himself a prisoner of Christ. Now, Paul writes this letter to his friends in Ephesus as an actual prisoner. It's not a metaphor. He is a prisoner stuck in a Roman jail when he writes this letter. But he says that he is a prisoner of Christ. He doesn't say in this letter, I'm a prisoner of Rome. That's not his self-understanding. He's been captured by Christ. And he understands his Roman imprisonment to be something that is on behalf of his Gentile fellow or fellow followers of Christ. And since we're a part of a movement of churches called Churches for the Sake of Others, I think we're in good company with Paul here. Now, I've never found myself in prison for the sake of Christ or for any other reason. Maybe most of you haven't either. But Paul does, and more than once. But I have sometimes found myself feeling stuck, maybe even trapped in painful or difficult circumstances along the way. For example, a few decades ago, I felt like a prisoner of the Northridge earthquake when the only home we've ever owned was gone. And some of the aftermath of that 
felt like a prison, a kind of prison, a financial place of being stuck. Or more recently, maybe like you, I've sometimes felt like a prisoner of this pandemic. There are things I used to do a lot that I never do now. I felt like a prisoner to doing nearly all my work sitting behind a desk looking at a computer screen when I used to travel around the world to enjoy meeting with people face to face. Whole faces, not just half faces, right? Felt, felt like a prisoner. I felt like a prisoner in my home sometimes during our seasons of quarantine along the way. I felt like a prisoner to so many limitations that we've all experienced in this last year or two. What's helped me in this reading is to think perhaps the way Paul does. He's locked up in an actual Roman prison. That's perhaps a little bit worse than some of the challenges I've faced along the way. Maybe you could objectively make such a case, I think. But Paul is able to see himself primarily as having been captured by Christ. And the limitations and the difficulties and the injustices that he faces are not as big in his self-understanding as is his sense of having been captured. He uses the language of slave at times to describe his way of relating to Christ. It's something intimate. It's something special for Paul to think of himself in this way. Now, this doesn't negate the suffering and hardship Paul faces. I mean, at the end of the reading, Paul urges his friends not to lose heart over what he is suffering for them. The Roman prison isn't a spa. It's a prison. It's difficult. He has lost his freedoms. He can't do the things, even for the sake of the gospel, that he'd like to be able to do. So it helps me when I think like Paul does of some of the difficult places I've found myself along the way, that I am there with Christ and Christ is there with me, and that I am there for the sake of others, not just for my own sake, my comfort, my convenience, but for the sake of others, as Paul was. I can find myself at home in Christ, no matter what I experience, like Paul does. Now, this brings us to a second phrase Paul uses to describe himself. This being a prisoner of Christ is connected to his sense of being a steward of grace. Having been captured by Christ, Paul reminds us that he has been given what he calls a stewardship of God's grace. Paul is entrusted with the message of God's generosity in Christ that he enjoys and that he shares with his fellow followers of Christ everywhere. Now in the church we've tended to use the word stewardship as it relates to money or perhaps talents. Those are perfectly good ways to use that word. But Paul describes his stewardship as it relates to grace. Now, one of my mentors loved to define grace in this way. He said, grace is God's empowering presence. It wasn't some substance that God sort of 
handed over to me. It was God's very presence, God's generous, kind presence with me. And God doesn't give me grace. You've heard the common God's unmerited favor definition for grace. I don't deserve it. Okay. No argument. Many of you may recall what Dallas Willard had to say about grace. He said, grace is God acting in our life to do what we cannot do on our own. Remember that? He said, grace is what we live by, and the human system won't work without it. And then that famous line when he said, the saint uses grace like a 747 burns fuel on takeoff. We are utterly and desperately in need of a God who is with us to be gracious to us. The reality of God's grace tells us that we are never alone in our journeys. The generous presence of God is like air in our lungs. It's like the blood coursing through our bodies. God's grace is the kind and good way in which God is always, always, always present to us. Especially when we face painful, difficult, unjust realities. Now, when it comes to how God's grace works in our lives, I think it's good to remember that we live in a world where we are prone to wander, as the hymn says. The fact that we observe a moment of communal confession as we gather week by week by week testifies to that reality. We are reminded that we have too often left undone those things which we ought to have done. And that we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And apart from his grace, there's no health in us. But we are not apart from his grace. That's the good news. This is what Paul is a steward of. Now, related to Paul's language of grace in this passage is his use of the word mystery. It shows up a number of times as we read through here. He talks about a mystery that God had revealed to him. He talks about his God-given insight into the mystery of Christ that hadn't been understood by previous generations. He says specifically that the mystery is that Gentiles have an equal share in the heritage, the community, and the promise of God because they are equally in Christ with their Jewish brothers and sisters. That's good news for me since I didn't grow up in a Jewish community. I'm one of those Gentiles who is an equal sharer in this gracious gift. And finally, he mentions the plan of the mystery that had been hidden for ages in God, but that was now being made known in his day. And he says, even to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. That sounds like maybe a sermon all by itself, what that means. But in all of this, he speaks, Paul speaks to what have been, would have been utterly mysterious to Paul's listeners at that time. You know, many of the Jews at the time of Jesus had come to understand their religious life as a set of outward and visible observances. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. The mystery, in part, that Paul was proclaiming was that God wanted to be graciously present within his persons and his people, within the people of God. He wanted to work 
in them the goodness that he wished for us. Which then leads us to a third way that Paul describes himself as a minister of the gospel. So prisoner of Christ, steward of grace, minister of the gospel. Paul extended God's invitation to anyone who might listen, that they might become partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. Paul says that God had given him grace to proclaim this gracious message of the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul wanted everyone to know that in Christ, they might discover bold and confident access to God. That's good news. We have good news to speak to a world that these days feels mostly filled with bad news. And it has felt like an invitation to me, and I extend it to you, that in a season where so much bad news seems to come our way, God may want to especially gospel our lives in the midst of that. That he may want to help us see that his good news is larger and more robust than the worst bad news that we hear day to day and week to week. His good news is a kind of eye at the center of the storm of the bad news that rages in our times. We can be, you don't need one of these to be, a minister of good news. God is gospeling our lives. Now, I can tend to be a cup half empty sort of person. Ask my wife what a blessing that can be sometimes. I can become so engrossed in the bad news that crosses my path that I ruminate and I meditate and I rivet my attention to the bad news. But Jesus says, and Paul on Jesus' behalf says, we are ministers of good news. The good news is greater for us than the bad news. And we live in a world desperate for a bit of good news, don't we? Now, in all of this, I'm trying to follow Paul's example. Paul resists the temptation to get a big head, to become self-important. As someone entrusted with such a mysterious, remarkable calling, proclaiming such a remarkable and great mystery, he's a prisoner of Christ, he's a steward of God's grace, he's a minister of the gospel. And then in all of this, finally, he describes himself as the very least of all the saints. Now, this may sound self-deprecating or even self-condemning, but in the context of the other three phrases he used to describe himself, it seems to me that they are humble words that highlight just how much grace Paul recognizes he needs in his life. I can remember as a young Christian, I had this vision of what it might look like to grow up in my faith in Christ. I imagined that there would come a day, maybe when I turned 60 like I did this year, when I would hardly need any grace at all. I would have addressed the challenges that I came to faith in Christ in as an 18-year-old, all those awful things I was involved in as an 18-year-old, 
And somehow as the decades wore on, I would just have need of less and less grace. Grace would be the spare tire in my trunk. I'm glad I have it, but I hope I don't need it. Less than least. See, I'm embarrassed to say I imagine I might become among the greatest of the saints. But Paul has been on a very long journey. And with great realism, he says, I'm the least of all God's people. It's not a statement mostly about himself getting worse and worse as the years went on. It was merely a way of saying, I need grace more than I ever knew I needed it before. Every place in my life is a place where God wants to generously meet me. Every task I engage is an opportunity to express God's empowering presence. Every conversation I have is a moment when through me, maybe like a river of living water, grace might flow to touch others in ways that would encourage or bless them. I need the empowering and generous and even forgiving presence of God more today than I ever have. This doesn't mean my life has become a greater mess or more disordered as time has gone on, as much as my awareness of need has grown the longer I've gone. It makes me think of our man in the gospel reading. He's deaf. He can hardly talk, the text says. He needs healing. He needs grace. Desperately. He doesn't have a plan B. There is no other option that he hasn't perhaps already explored. Jesus touches his ears, touches his tongue, speaks words of healing power, and the man hears and is able to speak clearly and plainly. Grace meets him where he is powerless. Grace meets him at his place of greatest need. It's a beautiful image, I think, of how Jesus wants to touch each of our lives in those ways in which we may feel in any way disabled. We need courage in the face of what frightens us. Grace meets us there. We need peace in the midst of that which worries us. Grace meets us there. We need strength where we feel weak. We need grace in more ways than perhaps we have ever known. And the thing is, that is not bad news. That is good news. That is gospel. That is perhaps what Paul understands himself to mean when he invites someone like Timothy to grow in the grace that is in our Lord Jesus Christ. Someone who is very least of all the saints just might become greatest in the kingdom of God's grace. I also think of the words we heard read from the psalm reading. Listen to those same words again in the light of God's ever-present, always available grace. Blessed, it's a grace word, are those whose help is in the God of Jacob whose hope is in the Lord their God, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, the Lord who remains faithful forever. 
He upholds the cause of the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, sets prisoners free, gives sight to the blind, lifts up those who are bowed down, loves the righteous, watches over the alien, sustains the fatherless and the widow. Where do you need grace today? Where in your journey do you need God to meet you in his generosity and in his empowering presence? How might God lift you up or set you free or nourish you or love you or protect you in this season of life in which you find yourself? So as we come to the close of this message, I'd like to reflect once more about these four ways Paul describes himself in this particular passage. And I wonder how they might intersect with where you find yourself today. Where have you felt like a prisoner needing to find yourself at home in Christ right there? What of God's grace that has he entrusted to you, both for your enjoyment and for you to share with others? In what ways do you need the good news of Christ to touch places in your life that feel mostly like bad news? And finally, are there ways that you identify with Paul's idea of being the least of the saints? But how might such places actually be grace places, ways in which the power of God is made perfect in weakness? where we perhaps discover that grace really is what we most need at any moment of our lives. It's my prayer this afternoon that you will discern the fresh ways in which God is longing to show you his grace, ways in which he would delight to be merciful to you, ways in which he wishes to simply be present to you as your Father in heaven. This I pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.